you know, I have a very full on career and responsible for taking care of my parents because I'm an only child. I don't really feel angry about that. But what I do feel angry about is the kind of invisibility of so many women who are middle aged and doing the exact same thing. And it's not even to do with, you know, being a woman of color. I think so many women in the United States and in the UK are in this position. Welcome to Women Are Mad, where we invite women to bring their anger into everyday conversation. We're all feeling it. Let's get together to work out what to do with it. I'm Jennifer Cox. And I'm Salima Saxton. Uh, What's made you angry this week, Salima? Um, Okay, so I'm realising something. Increasingly, I'm not cross at people. Uh, in a bar, the obvious, but I'm more cross about things. Can I say two things? You can. <laughs> Is that a bit greedy? No, please. <laughs> okay, two things. Reading a great book by Emma Gannon about the success myth. myth. Everybody should read it. Um, bit cross about the fact that I haven't gauged this until my 40s about success being different to what we were trained up for it to us to believe in in our 20s and 30s. Um, so she should have written this 20 years ago. Um, so a bit cross about that. Uh, secondly, a bit cross okay. about, uh, being a country dweller and everything being so London centric. Now oh, I live down a little lane. I used to be one of you smug Londoners who was like, well, why would you do it outside of London? And now I'm like, oh my God, you're all obsessed. None of you ever leave. Anyway, so they, so I've I've taken two. Sorry, I want to ask really. about just I know we haven't got long, but I just want to ask quickly about this success idea. Mm. Is it that she's telling you things that are really precious now that you wish you'd heard then? And if so, can you tell me what they are? I mean, I wouldn't dare uh, quickly uh, summarize summarize Emma Gannon's brilliant book. I would suggest that you <laughs> read it. But um, that's annoying. That's going to take me sorry. how how long? Yeah. Yeah. But um, no, just look, it's what you, you we've talked about this, you and me before, just in the linear nature of success, how we're trained up to it. And particularly as women, if you decide to have a kind of family or you're, you're not just climbing a straightforward hierarchy, if you're mm-hmm. self-employed, um, you know, success is going to take various forms and various parts of your life are going to look better in, in inverted commas than others at various points, aren't they? Mm. Um, but it's, but we, we've kind of been trained up for this dynasty style. Sorry, is it dynasty? It's another one of my pronunciations. Is it dynasty? Uh, shoulder pads and stilettos. Shoulder, yeah, you know, kind of we, we, that's in our heads, isn't it? A little bit. And know, so if us, we're not that, we've failed. Yeah. And um, I'm still trying to learn. I mean, there is a point. If we're not that, we possibly have failed. Oh, <laughs> they no. did look good. <laughs> they did look. I know. I know. They really did. Um, <laughs> but but yeah. No. But I think it's just an interesting thing to to think about. The 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 you know, success isn't kind of like up here or down there. There's mm. lots of variations of it. And there's so many strands to our amazing lives. and Yeah, it's um, really making me think about something a guest said the other day, but I don't want to say it in case we end up reordering how we release oh, them I and see. then sort of do a spoiler. Oh, I see. Um, 
so that makes me think oh something that wouldn't do a spoiler yes is a robot and yes. that's what's making me cross this week good segue yeah i mean chat gpt mm. ais fuck off yeah i know you're very scared of them i just oh. think we are this isn't funny mm. this is very serious what has happened i'm gonna leave it there so i'm going to intro today my dear friend wendy chin tanner um who is not only an author but a poet uh she wrote two brilliant poetry collections actually turn and anyone will tell you but which is my particular favorite um on top of that she's also a publisher her and her husband co-founded a wave blue world which is an independent publishing company for graphic novels. And she is about to release on July the 25th, her very first novel, which is called King of the Armadillos. Please welcome Wendy Chin Tan. I've known Wendy since university days, Cambridge days, in fact, where you were, Jen, as well. And I first, I remember seeing you, Wendy, because Wendy's, how tall are you? Five seven. Yeah, no. five seven. Okay, but I'm pathetic, like five foot three and a half, aren't I? So, um, but she had on these amazing platforms. Do you remember those platforms you used to wear? I still do, but she just had this a most. I mean, I was terrified of Wendy when I first met her. Interestingly, oh, yeah, yeah. She really, she. I just found her to be a really extraordinary presence. You look like something. In fact, it's interesting that you publish graphic novels because you looked like. A, a heroine of a graphic novel come to life. I wore a lot of thrift. I still do, actually. I was really into thrift store clothing. You know, I, could have, I, I suppose I looked particularly strange at Cambridge, but I didn't care. Slash beautiful yeah, and not strange, or like, inspiring. Yeah, yeah. Just ever, and also all these like geek, geeky little Cambridge students around you. It was it was a great look. <laughs> Nobbling around look. in the we dirt. It clicked. You know, in the way that you just do with some people, you know, it was like like Lego pieces. Mm, mm. Love yeah. that. Well, I think that came from the fact that, you know, we're both Asian. Yep. We both working class backgrounds mm. and we're sort of fish out of water mm. in that. So, How did you end up there, Wendy? I needed to get the hell out of New York. I needed to put as much distance between myself and you know my dysfunctional upbringing as possible you know and i i think actually like you know factoring into the anger piece that mm -hmm. i grew up in brooklyn as a woman of color and uh that's not an easy place to be as a woman of color you know in america um so you know, I think going abroad for me was a way to be able to relax for the first time, you know, mm -hmm. because for the first time in my life, you know, I had so much alterity, so many different ways that I could be othered in the States. And that was reduced at Cambridge to a more sort of like neutral thing. And that felt really good to me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. How so did you I find, sorry, I just wanted to know how you found the Cambridge experience in general. Well, 
I went, I grew up in New York City and I went to one of these, you know, fancy private schools. So they knew about all that. <laughs> um, you know, in, in the States, it's called PWIs, you know, primarily white institutions. So I went to one of those. Um, it was called St. Anne's in Brooklyn. And that's the school that produces, it's kind of thought of as the Hogwarts of New York City prep schools because it's meant to produce people who are of the artistic class. You know, so example, Lena Dunham went there. You know, all these artists and writers, it produces a lot of artists and writers and actors, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Uh, which, you know, on the one hand is great. I certainly, you know, got a very solid education there. But on the other hand, it was a little bit gaslighty because it was like, oh, the artistic class is above class and race issues and above gender issues, but that's not the case. Is it? <laughs> no. So I want to know, knowing what I do about your parents, how on earth did you end up there? Well, I lived in the neighborhood <laughs> and also I had gone to, you know, in the States public school is uh, state school. So I had started out at the sort of local state school and, um, you know, sort of very quickly uh, felt really uncomfortable there. And in third grade, I had a teacher who um, who really got me. And she said to my parents that if they could afford it, if they were able to do it, then I would fare better in a smaller environment and, you know, one where I was academically challenged. Um so, you know, St. Anne's was a school that was also in the neighborhood. It was within walking distance, but, you know, it, it was really small classes and the kids were of all different levels. You know, there were lots of other kids who were like me um, in terms of being quite advanced in some areas and maybe not so much in others. And they could accommodate that. When you got there, was it more that it was the school that kind of fit the bill in terms of of it being close and sort of affordable enough or was the fact that it was an artsy place a factor for your parents? I think it was simply that, you know, they felt more comfortable with the administration, you know, like they, I, I did um, interview at several other schools and I think that the, um, you know, they used to call it headmaster, the headmaster of that school was the kindest to them and he was the least sort of condescending to them oh. and and I think the clincher was that he said if you ever have an issue you can call me at any time night or day and that that was it for them they were like okay you know mm. we'll do that so I'm interested you as a teenager or you as a as a child from say eight nine onwards where did anger factor in that period of your life? Or did you lead with it in any way, perhaps? Oh, very much so. I mean, I'm, you know, I have big feelings. I'm a very sensitive person, as most writers and artists are. And um, in the environment that I grew up in, you know, New York City, 1970s and 80s, was a very rough place. Very, very rough. Um, nothing like what it is now, you know, it had been economically depressed for so long. There was crime ridden. Um, so, you know, it was, it was a rough environment. And also, you know, my family had a lot of chaotic issues, right? Like we're immigrants um, and, you know, constantly embattled 
I guess, in trying to get a foothold in this sort of very tough environment. So I think that I learned quite early that anger in my house was um, an acceptable emotion. You know, vulnerability, crying especially was somewhat ridiculed and like they didn't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. So my parents had an art supply store, um, a small art supply store in downtown Brooklyn. So they would open six days a week from 9 a.m. until um, I think in the old days, it was like 6.30 or 7 p.m. And then, then they would come pick me up at my grandmother's house. And then we would go home and have dinner and da-da-da-da-da. So, so they didn't have time for feelings. No, they didn't have time for parents either. You know, I was mm-hmm. a very sort of uh, parentified and neglected child. Mm-hmm. Um, yet at the same time sort of expected to excel with no help and no tools. <laughs> Like, oh, so, you know, we've put you in this in this elite environment and, you know, we feed you and we clothe you and we're giving you the things, many of which we did not have. So So were you meant to be grateful? Yes. Oh, yes. Very much. But and this is such a common story, isn't it, of second generation immigrants, right? That the the expectation of excelling. If I think of my own mother. So I remember the day that I got married and I said to my mum, oh, I'm quite nervous, actually. And my mum said, this is nothing. You went to Cambridge. You know, like my my mum leads with my daughter. She went to Cambridge. You know, that that for my mum is everything. The best thing about you. It it is the only uh, thing. (laughs) Yes. Like one one has done things since right but <laughs> they don't count no i mean she's still hoping uh, uh, wendy knows that she's still hoping that i'm going to be a lawyer and like i'll see the light of day there but, is time um, salima there, there is, is time. time there is time but um but it's but the pressure to, yeah back to the anger that you were talking about yes please. but so you know i think anger was a bit of a shield for me you know it, it oh. protects my vulnerable emotions so oh. i transfer Fear, anxiety, you know, shame. Uh, no, I feel a lot of shame. No, fear and anxiety, I would just, I would filter it through anger. So how would the anger look? I mean, did your parents get the brunt of it? You know, they did They did get it sometimes. And, you know, my, I might have learned this from my dad. You know, my dad is quite similar. And so he would almost like applaud that sort of fight in me. I think it annoyed my mother and my mother was the crier in the family and she didn't quite know what to do with this sort of like mouthy kid. Um, But it actually mostly came out when I started school, you know, because very quickly I got a lot of racial stuff and, you know, so very quickly there was bullying starting in kindergarten and I had been very under socialized, had never had a play date had never gone to preschool, none of that. So I was thrown in the deep end of the New York City system. You were really vulnerable. Very vulnerable. Mm. And and so my grandmother didn't speak English. So I was actually, you know, in many ways in a non-English speaking household because she was my primary caregiver. So I even remember there being words that I didn't know in English. But so, you know with those provocations, I don't know what happened, but I would just, you know, a a switch would flip and I would just throw down. Like I had physical fight. Did you? Yeah. But you must have been terrified underneath that. 
the confusion yeah. and and that vulnerability. I mean, I'd love to know what do you think as someone who went to school with you at that age? And I said, Wendy, who? How would they describe you now? Do you think? I think um, contradictory. You know, painfully shy on the one hand, and socially awkward, but then you know, with this odd sort of flip that might happen. Um, right. So yeah. not predictable, not a predictable character. That was protective because yeah. no one wants to mess with the crazy kid. It's a tactic. Yeah. How did this ev- evolve, Wendy, as you got older into teenage years? Well, I mean, you know, I, I learned, of course, that there were consequences for this kind of behavior. Um, and even though I kept getting away with it, I think because I was, you know, I was a, I was a nice, sweet kid most of the time. And also because I did well academically, I got away with a lot of this behavior. And also it would be, you know, it would be focused on known bullies, you know. So when I when I was caught, when I was, you know, sent to the principal's office or whatever, you know, the they they would know that it wasn't really my fault. And even though it's not the best way of handling it to get physical, you know, I didn't have terrible consequences really, just kind of like, you know, detention at lunch, but I didn't care because I would just do my homework anyway, you know. Was anything uh, offered by way of kind of uh, support for for you, but also for this situation? You know, did they try and intervene? Were there any approaches to that? Completely not. <laughs> yeah. You would hope it's quite different now. You would hope. I think, you know, there were so few people of color at the school anyway, that I mean, I I don't think that it really occurred to them to factor that into the budget. Wow. Right? So so this really brings me to, and we've gone about it in a roundabout route because I was so interested by your early years. Mm. You know, we always ask people generally, what makes you angry, Wendy? And if I were to ask you that as a child, as a teenager, 20-something, 30-something, 40-something, mm. are, there, are there clear um, paths to those things that make you angry, be they at macro level or micro? Yeah, completely. I mean, I think the through line is certainly racism and sexism, right? Yep. Like the, And also classism. And as, you know, the first person in my family to go to university, um, you know, I think class factored in to this a lot. So that always pushed my buttons, certainly. Um, and also people underestimating and disrespecting my parents. I was their sword and their shield. I was meant to be the thing that would um, make up for all the crap that they had. To oh, put God. I mean, the pressure, though, the pressure on you. Yeah. And Wendy's yeah. an only child as well. But so what makes me angry, I guess, now as an adult is that, you know, I am 46 years old. I have two daughters, ages 16 and eight. And, you know, I have a very full on career and responsible for taking care of my parents because I'm an only child. And because normally do so. So, you know, can I I just ask how you feel about that, Wendy? The the taking care of them Mm -hmm. part? Mm -hmm. I accept it as, you know, something that 
I've always known that I would have to do. You know, I, I don't I don't really feel angry about that. But what I do feel angry about is the kind of invisibility of so many women who are middle aged and who are doing the exact same thing. And it's not even to do with, you know, being a woman of color. I think so many women in the United States and in the UK are in this position. Yeah. And, you know, it's not a very sexy position. People don't talk about it. And at the same time, you know, I'm going through perimenopause and it's hitting me really. I really have medical misogyny around that too. talk about ability. Could you could you say more about that? This is a hot topic for us. Yeah, completely. I mean, you know, it took me it took me about a year of complaining about my ever escalating set of symptoms to actually get my uh, practitioner in in the States, it's called PCP, you know, your uh, primary care practitioner to actually um, consider prescribing me anything. And then she sent me to do a whole battery of tests first before she prescribed me anything. Uh, And in the end, you know, I've, I've then had to do a bunch of drug trials. So I'm actually currently on my fourth. Sorry, in order to get HRT? Yes. Whoa. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It makes no sense. Is this this a kind of usual, typical tale in the States? I believe so. And I think it has something to do with, you know, Mm. what my dad called the medical industrial complex. You know, Um, I, I do think it has to do with with that because you know each time you go see a specialist you pay for it and you pay a lot for it i do think it's incredible to hear somebody like yourself who would obviously be able to speak to a medical professional very clearly about Mm -hmm. your symptoms Mm -hmm. and clearly demand what you need yet still not able to receive the care and the support that you're obviously in want of which makes me really reflect on how many women are out there currently who might not have the same skills or education or even confidence to speak yeah. to, um, we call them GPs in Britain, mm-hmm. about their symptoms. And perimenopausal symptoms and menopausal symptoms can be so odd and discombobulating and vague. Yeah. Yeah. And if you don't have the grasp of the words, the terminology mm. and and, are, and feel intimidated in that environment, yeah. I can see how so many women who are in this sandwich generation mm. of caring for youngers and for caring for elders and for trying to maintain or sustain even a career, I can see how they are utterly, utterly muffled. And and there's also something really sinister, I think, here, you know, when we're thinking about the states particularly and women's bodies now and how little agency you have actually over them, no matter how educated or aware, it, 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 that can't change things for you. I completely agree with that. And I think it's also a training issue, you know, like medical practitioners are not trained around perimenopause. Mm. That has to be sought out individually. You know, it's not taught in medical school. So that's a problem too. Can we ask you about the changes to abortion laws in the States and how that may be contributing also to your 
feelings these days? Oh, my goodness. I mean, I have two daughters. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I am enraged, one of whom is 16. And, you know, I, I can't believe that we are here, frankly. And I think what makes me angriest about, um, you know, our loss of rights over our bodies is actually the gaslighting around it. It's actually the fact that there is this gross disjuncture between um, the kind of branding that the United States gets and gives around freedom and around equality and around uh, particularly towards women and girls, this idea of, you know, girl power, we have solved sexism, you can do anything, you can be anything, you know, this kind of cultural sense of women's equality Mm. without concrete pieces that make that so, without the systemic Totally. I mean, you've basically described why Women Are Mad got set up as a movement right there. (laughs) And and also, I think these phrases, we've talked before, haven't we, about hashtag be kind, you know, and in how enraged I am by that, you know, girl power, all these kind of things that are bandied around. I think, as Wendy quite rightly points out, without foundations, they are not only meaningless, they are damaging because they are suggesting things that are not possible and not attainable really at all. Yeah. Yeah. And then what happens internally when that is the case, when a woman is ambitious and wants to go for it and then hits these obstacles, I think they internalize it. I certainly did it as opposed to seeing it as a global systemic issue failing yeah and and also wendy before you came on we were talking about um this great book this woman's written emma gannon called the success myth um and talking about exploding that particularly from a female point of view and i you know and i think that's linked in with this in that we are so trained up to view success in a certain way yet we we don't have the resources or the society holding us in a sufficient way to gain those kind of successes then one internalizes it and thinks, oh, no, I failed. I didn't do it well enough. I didn't try hard enough. But actually, it was never set up for you in the first place. And you're doing really well. But that, that, yeah, it's true. It is a gigantic gaslight. Mm. Uh, this book written by a British journalist that's come out recently, uh, Rose Hackman's Emotional Labor. You you might have seen her stuff, actually. She writes for The Guardian and stuff but um, but i'll look her up i'll look her Mm. up it's gonna make your blood boil (laughs) but it already is my blood is already boiling yeah but just you know thinking about the way in which emotional labor is you know placed onto women's backs first and foremost but also completely invisible Mm. and in a capitalist society it is necessary but unpaid labor right yeah, because without it, mm. yeah, mm-hmm. about the ways and and speaks of the ways in which class and race um, factor in as well. It's making me think about you know how how feelings are so um, they're so 
sort of sublimated and treated as something so inconsequential in in our society and one of the ways in which that can happen is because women are doing so much absorption of them so men can come home and be furious and have had a terrible day but they're able to go back to work and do a really good job because basically their poor partners have sort of soaked all that up for them right right for example (laughs) and also look i think so much of this continues because we are so um it's so gone into our cells it's so gone into every pore that we behave in a certain way that can we really blame the individual whoever they are for Mm -hmm. acting that way I don't think we necessarily can Mm -hmm. we have to look look at it from a much larger point of view why does this person feel able to take up this this much space? Yeah, it's not their and this, fault. And this person, as such, isn't isn't able to or mm. feels they they must internalize it or keep it quiet mm. or keep it nice. Be kind. Here I go again. Be but kind. you know, shut yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Wendy, can we ask you how you express your anger? I mean, I have to say, I'm a bit of a yeller. <laughs> So I do, I do raise my voice. The Brooklyn comes out. Um, <laughs> Can we have a demo? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't want to be in the same room. Well, I mean, I'd like to observe it. I wouldn't want to be on there. I wouldn't, I wouldn't mess with it. Not directed at you. In the domestic sphere, I think I do raise my voice. I do raise my voice at my children and they check me on it, which, which is great. You know, like, um, I love that they're not afraid of me. Half the time they laugh at me when uh-huh. <laughs> oh, check me in, in kind of a kind of a positive way. I'm like, oh, shit, I did it again. But the other half of the time, you know, we 100 percent of the time we process it. You know, like I have no issue parenting wise with speaking about my mistakes, mm-hmm. talking conflicts, resolve conflicts. and repair. But I think probably outside of the domestic sphere, um, I'm told, you know, one isn't necessarily conscious of it, but I'm told that I get sort of very, very stony, very, very polite, but, you know, in a sort of, I guess, in a sort of like professorial way, Um, you know. Quite impressive, maybe. Yeah. That is, I think that's part of my armor. I think I have such a horror of being underestimated mm-hmm. that, um, you know, that became a kind of tool against it. Um, and I, I think I've observed this tool of yours in fine operation, even when you were 20 years old. So it's really? In- yeah. So it's interesting to me. I think you had already finessed it at that point. <laughs> you must be a professor of it by now. <laughs> I mean, I then sort of like floundered for a long time in academia. So I did teach a lot of undergrads. I taught undergraduate sociology, actually, for, um, I think, a total of 12 years. So, um, yeah, yeah. And actually, here's another thing that we can talk about that I'm perpetually angry about. You know, as Salima knows, um, you know, we we were both um, girls who had artistic aspirations. I had always wanted to write. I had had some early success with it. Um, 
at Cambridge, I published a poem in the Maze Anthology, which is where a lot of um, agents will come and um, approach young writers and pick up young writers at the uh, launch party, release, what have you. And so, you know, I was approached by a London agent and, you know, at 21, I didn't know my ass or my elbow, you know, (laughs) I didn't, you know, cultural capital, inherited capital to know what to I also didn't have the mentorship. I was also ashamed of asking for help. That's another issue that I'm still trying to overcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I just was so happy to be chosen that I didn't think about the fact that um, this person was supposed to be this man, was supposed to be my business partner. You know, I treated him like he was my supervisor, perhaps, mm-hmm. you know. And I didn't even consider the fact that I could, I could, and I should shop around. Right. And that you had power in that situation, actually. I had no idea. I didn't know what I was entitled to. And it was a bad fit. And so, you know, he told me at one point after I tried to write something for him that it was unsellable. And so I took that, I took that to heart. I took that on. So young. Oh, you were well. a kid. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I was like, okay, I guess I'd better go back to grad school because I don't want to go back to the States. I guess I'd better go back to grad school and do something else. You know, so I was so ashamed that I didn't even go back to the English faculty because that was what my, you know, initial degree was in. Um, I was so ashamed by this big failure that I went next door to the sociology faculty instead. I didn't know this. I didn't know this about you. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there I stayed for like 10 years. I I had um, writer's block for like 10 years. Wow. Until the birth of my my older daughter. I mean, I'm just thinking about the impacted anger that may well have uh, lined that writer's block for you. So I'm just looking at the three of us in our Zoom. You know, we were, we were all from middle, lower middle class, working class backgrounds. All, all I mean, I, I'm state educated, as is Jen. So I know you went to private, but your parents, you know, immigrants to the States. Mm-hmm. We were all, yeah, fish fishes out of water at Cambridge. And it was, a, it was a lot to navigate back in the 90s, wasn't it? I think it's mm. changing a lot now. But, you know, when you talk about not having the capital to be able to navigate those kind of, I mean, that was extraordinary that, you know, a big old agent wanted to sign you, Wendy, right? Mm. And, I, and it just makes me think about how multi-generational wealth, multi-generational wealth in not just financial, but in cultural terms, mm. in gives you such an extraordinary leapfrogging ability at that age because you can handle those big maneuvers, right? Or you can ask your your uncle, parents. You can ask your parent. Yeah, mm. you know, you wouldn't have asked your parents for advice <laughs> with, this, with this London literary agent. You were on your own. It's different worlds, yeah. isn't it? My parents came to Cambridge one time, and that was for my graduation. So, you know, I was very much alone, but I I sort of preferred it that way because as a parentified child, um, that kind of took away the burden. So it gave me more space. But at the same 
time. Yeah, I was I was very alone in these sorts of decisions. And, you know, as a young person, I made a lot of the wrong decisions that were fear based and that were shame based, Mm. you know. So, yeah, we um, we always ask what people think was their sort of angriest time, you know, across their lives. And I'm just wondering about this writer's block. 12 years for you and I don't know whether you've thought about it in that way before but it's just kind of wedged itself into my head and I just wonder what you think was that my angriest time Mm, just just wondering yeah completely like maybe even unconsciously oh I I agree with you entirely I'm thinking about it now and I think that that was woven together with the sort of um you know, kind of nasty, sexist and racist politics that I encountered really for the first time as a postgrad, as mm. a graduate, you really kind of see behind the veil a lot mm. more. And I did. So what did you see? What did you see, Wendy? The fallout of departmental politics would fall on the shoulders of women. And in my case, a woman of color who was presumed to be accommodating and that I would put up with a less than optimal situation in my PhD, for example. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and and I did put up with it. Why? Because I was afraid that if I were to complain, then I would lose my spot, you know, that I was there already. I should be grateful to be there already kind of thing. So mm-hmm. that all of that was happening in conjunction with the writer's block. So, Jen, I think you're absolutely right that you know, I was angry about that and also angry about the loss of this, you know, this this dream that I'd had since I was a very young kid. Um, it felt like I'd lost my right arm. I think not only was it a dream, but writing has always been, you know, a tool, I think, for me to process my emotions. Mm. Safe place for me. It's a calm place for me. Um, it, the, the noise is turned down in that writing place. Um, so the loss of that was really profound. What shifted when your first daughter was born? Well, I mean, I think that um, the sort of trippy experience of the first few months when you're a new parent, you know, a new mother in particular, the sort of um, matrescence um, and that space of being like, basically like on drugs for months, essentially. Yes. Massive cocktail of hormones mm-hmm. for your veins, but also you haven't slept in months and months. So I think for me, there was something about the place that allowed me to tap into my subconscious mm-hmm. more. I started dreaming, like when I did actually sleep, I started dreaming furiously. And, um, you know, it was really difficult. And so I started uh, a meditation practice to try and like calm my shit. Um, And in that meditation practice, I think I was able to turn down the noise and then switch on that frequency again. And I started to, the way I think of it is, you know, started to hear the music of the words again. And so in dreams, I just started to like write them down and I started to write down however it was that music was telling me to you know process those dreams and that became my first poetry collection oh yeah yeah so i think you know 
becoming a pop the cork. It, it's fantastic to also hear somebody speak about how motherhood Agreed. released yes. their creativity. Yes. It wasn't the beginning of the end. You know, I Absolutely. think we're so used to seeing this in popular culture. About, yeah, that the two can't go together. Yeah, that the or, two can't yeah there's no continue. time. There's no time. It's exhausting. Mm. It's, you know, you become a mother and it's all over in, in some way, but that's okay because you're a mother. But actually... And actually, I would agree with you. Once I got through a certain stage, you know, because I had three in quite quick succession, motherhood for me at this point in my life has, and having left London actually as well, has totally released me to be truly creative. Finally, at this age, I finally yeah. am not second guessing myself. Um, I feel able just to speak, to write, to act. There's nothing um, getting in the way. And there's less, I wonder it as well, post-motherhood, and maybe it's the age that we all are as well. I'm less tuned into the audience. I used mm. to be so zoned into who is my audience. Oh, what are they thinking? What must they feel or think? Mm-hmm. And and maybe that's also a legacy of the sort of people-pleasing and slightly parentified, as you said, Wendy and Salima, you know, you know what this yes, is. Yes, yes. Um, that suddenly the the path is a bit cleared. Mm. Yes, I think so. It was just quite simply that I was too tired to be scared. Right, right. <laughs> and also that you discovered because you were so tired, you just sort of dove into your unconscious and you discovered the 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 deep wells of productivity there. Yeah, I think so. And I think you know from that point on, I learned to lean quite heavily on my subconscious. Mm create you know so even when I'm writing novels it's almost like a method acting exercise you know I go into that subconscious place and try on these characters so that I can hear them what do you do Wendy for relaxation or to feel calm what's right I think you write I <laughs> do mean you write is that is that where this you is go not, this is not the question to ask Wendy Chintana <laughs> I can I can vouch for that no I mean I have this bad history and Salima and I talk about this a lot um I have this really bad history of like pushing until the point of burnout and then my body just switches off what does that look like illness yeah illness Mm. or just like you know absolute exhaustion and needing to sleep far more than I normally do but you know generally illness generally it's illness. But yeah, so one thing that I'm learning to do is to preempt that by, you know, like when I notice a certain kind of body feeling or a certain sort of like vibration uh, or energy that I have, then I'm like, okay, you know, it's coming. Mm. And I try my hardest to force myself to take two or three days off and just sleep as much as I like, watch as much, you know, stupid Netflix stuff as I like not put my not put any pressure on myself to you know read stuff for work or to do anything around work so that that helps that's kind of unplugging I guess Mm. I go on walks and I hike you know like nature Mm. is helpful nature's good so that's that's also you know I have women from um you know my friendships are very long like with Salima, what, like 25 years, 26 years. I have a friend that I've 
that I'm very close to, whom I've known since I was 15. We're very, very close still. Um, the woman I think of as my best friend in the sort of Anne of Green Gables way, uh, 20 Kindred years. spirits. Yes, yes. And she's, you know, she mirrors back to me um, what she sees, which um, is is very lovely and sort of counteracts all of those negative voices that we all have. I think that's the thing as well, isn't it? Female friendships for me are what have sustained me through every kind of period of my life. Yeah, that comes from relational intelligence, right? Like, and the ability to do deep dives into intimacy. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you so much. Yeah, you are are a dream come true. Right, bright star. Uh, And everybody, everybody must buy your book, King King of the Armadillos, which is going to be on July the 25th. It's going to be released, isn't it? Yeah, it might make it over to the UK. I don't think that the foreign sales have gone through with the UK yet. So the US this summer, we can. But but and we can get it online. I, I think so. I don't. I don't know. I'm actually not sure. Fine. Well, we'll investigate. We'll go looking. Thank you so much, Wendy. Hello, I'm Violet Manners, and welcome to Hidden Heritage, the podcast that brings you inside Great Britain's favourite destinations. From the same team that brought you the number one history podcast, Duchess, Hidden Heritage will uncover the fascinating stories behind the UK's brightest shining hidden gems. You'll hear from top experts in British heritage, including custodians, historians, artisans, experts, and even the craftsmen and restorers who've worked on some of the most celebrated historic buildings. We will share the untold and unique stories that celebrate UK heritage, from landmarks to architecture, artifacts to myths and legends. Hidden Heritage will highlight a side to British history you have never seen before. I'm your host, Violet Manners, and founder of Heritage X, and I invite you all to join us on this exciting journey. This is Hidden Heritage. You can find Hidden Heritage wherever you listen to your podcasts.